Howdy folks, this is Matt Sewell, and you're listening to episode 32 of the Popecast, the podcast for people who like learning about the popes and church history, but hate being bored. We're back this week with an episode on a pope who was equal parts lion and lamb. His blunt writing on papal authority was a respectful dunk on the Eastern Emperor and served as that teaching's foundation for centuries. But in the same breath, he gave away all his earthly possessions before the end and willingly died penniless. Coming in at number 49, it's the lesser-known Defender of Rome, Pope St. Gelasius I. Gelasius was born a Roman citizen, but hailed from North Africa, making him the third and final pope in history to hail from that region of the world. Pope Victor I in 199 and Pope Milchides in 314 being the other two. Aside from his birth, history has long forgotten everything else about Gelasius prior to his service to and eventual succession of Pope St. Felix III. But thankfully, even though Gelasius was only pope for four and a half years himself, there's plenty to be told of this last shorter chapter of his life. Europe in the late 5th century was a pretty dicey place. Gone was the prestige of old Rome, replaced by nearly a century of barbarian invasions and conquerings. Listeners to the Popecast will remember the story of St. Leo the Great in 452, meeting Attila the Hun at the edge of the city and convincing him not to sack the place, which he agreed to temporarily. The center of the empire had moved east to Constantinople as a result, so it's no surprise then that the popes of that era were in constant argument with the patriarchs and emperors in the east, disputing not just heresies, but who and where could lay claim to supremacy over the church and the world. Added to that, when Gelasius I ascended to the chair of Peter on March 1st, 492, he inherited what's now known to us as the Acacian Schism, named for Acacius the Patriarch of Constantinople, in 484. This particular schism was a split between East and West over a document called the Hedonicon, or Edict of Union, which tried to paper over that ever-so-important reality that Christ had two natures, not one, in an effort to reconcile back to full communion a merry band of monophysites, the heretics who believed that Christ had but a single nature. So, needless to say, Gelasius arrived on the scene when things were more of a mess than usual, but hey, then again, so it goes for pretty much any pope in any age of the church, right? But in any case, things didn't get much better on the schism front, but the situation proved to be the perfect grounds for Gelasius to build on what Leo the Great had started and become the lesser-known champion of papal authority and the supremacy of the See of Rome. In fact, the Catholic Encyclopedia puts it even more strongly that saying... Quote, it has been well said that nowhere at this period can be found stronger arguments for the primacy of Peter's see than in the works and writings of Gelasius. He is never tired of repeating that Rome owes its ecclesiastical princedom not to an ecumenical synod, nor to any temporal importance it may have possessed, but to the divine institution of Christ himself, who conferred the primacy over the whole church upon Peter and his successors. End quote. Gelasius' vigor was exemplified most famously in a letter to the Byzantine Emperor Anastasius in 494, the emperor whose predecessor had endorsed the Henoticon alongside the patriarch Acacius. In his letter, Gelasius made his case for how the church and the state are related to one another, 
and which was more superior before God. More importantly, he writes, quote, There are two powers, August Emperor, by which this world is chiefly ruled, namely the sacred authority of the priests and the royal power of kings. Of these, that of the priests is weightier, since they have to render an account for even the kings of men in the divine judgment. You are also aware, most clement son, that while you you are permitted honorably to rule over humankind, yet in divine matters you bend your neck devotedly to the bishops and await from them the means of your salvation. In the reception and proper disposition of the heavenly sacraments, you recognize that you should be subordinate rather than superior to the religious order, and that in these things you depend on their judgment rather than wish them to bend to your will. End quote. Now, I'll share a bit more from that letter at the end, but hot dang, can you imagine today? The, the closest comparison I can think of in our day is Mother Teresa retorting to Hillary Clinton after being asked why she thought there hadn't yet been a woman president in the U.S. without missing a beat. Mother Teresa said that it was probably because she'd been aborted. Or when that same saintly nun humbly but forcefully spoke at the U.N. before a room of the most powerful nations in the world about that very same scourge. I mean, shocking though it may seem, such was the nature of Gelasius. In the way he expressed his views, almost sometimes maybe seemingly tyrannical or arrogant. In fact, though, as Matthew Bunsen writes in his book, The Pope Encyclopedia, Gelasius, quote, was revered by his contemporaries for his humility, prayerful nature, and sincere concern for the church, end quote. The Monophysites weren't the only heretics that Gelasius fought against in his short stint as pontiff. The Manichaeans were still a force in Rome. You might remember those as the group that St. Augustine uh, pledged allegiance to before his conversion. But many of those Manichaeans apparently were pretending to be Catholic as a way to blend in. This was actually the impetus for Gelasius, known to be fully traditional to old ways of doing things, but savvy enough to see when an exception or a modification should be made. And in the case of the Manichaeans, Gelasius decided to allow the Eucharist at Mass to be distributed under both species, the sacred body and the chalice. The reason for this being, of course, that the Manichaeans were what we might call now teetotalers. They wouldn't drink wine. They thought it was sinful to drink wine. So when they refused the chalice, their jig was up. As far as other things Gelasius is well known for, he's the first pope to write about all four celebrations of the Ember Days. Those are the days of fasting and abstinence that precede the changing of each season. Plus, he was the first pope to allow ordinations on Ember Saturdays. Normally, those were reserved for Easter up until that time. And it's from his papacy that we started to see the spreading of that Ember Days devotion and practice throughout the church and not just in Rome. It also used to be thought that we owed to Gelasius the first historical listing of the current canon of Scripture, the books of the Bible we, we still read today, of course. But listeners to one of the earliest PopeCast episodes should recall that it was actually Pope St. Damasus I who claimed that title a century earlier, and Gelasius was simply repeating the tradition of uh, popes following Damasus to simply spell out the accepted canon of Scripture before giving his approved list of church fathers and other apocryphal writings. And last but not least, one of the saucier happenings that went on in Rome at the time, itself being one of the banes of Gelasius's existence, was the Lupercalia, an ancient pagan festival celebrated each February and known for its rather bizarre rituals and scanty dress and behavior among those participating in it. The festival centered on Rome's foundation myth, or came from it, and the, the root word being lupus or wolf, referring to the she-wolf, 
that fed the infants Romulus and Remus in that in that story of Rome's founding. And Lupercalia endured for several centuries, had its own priests known as Luperci or Luperci, and in, involved its own sacrificial ceremony, which is recounted as such sourced and compiled on the Lupercalia Wikipedia page. Quote, at the Lupercal altar, a male goat or goats and a dog were sacrificed by one or another of the Luperci under the supervision of the Flamen Dialis, Jupiter's chief priest. An offering was also made of salted meal cakes prepared by the Vestal Virgins. After the blood sacrifice, two Luperci approached the altar. Their foreheads were anointed with blood from the sacrificial knife, then wiped clean with wool soaked in milk after which they were expected to smile and or laugh. The sacrificial feast followed, after which the Luperci cut thongs, known as februa, from the flayed skin of the animal, and ran with these, naked or near naked, along the old Palatine boundary in an anti-clockwise direction around the hill. And in Plutarch's description of the Lupercalia written during the early empire, quote, many of the noble youths and of the magistrates run up and down through the city naked for sport and laughter, striking those they meet with shaggy thongs. And many women of rank also purposely get in their way, and like children at school present, present their hands to be struck, believing that the pregnant will thus be helped in delivery and the bear into pregnancy, end quote. So you get the idea why Pope St. Gelasius might have been a little upset when self-professed Christians at least Christians in name, I suppose, were participating in these lewd rituals. Naked dudes running around like idiots and hitting women in hopes it would help them have babies. Gelasius reportedly said that only quote-unquote vile rabble participated in the ceremony, and as forcefully as he could, sought its abolition with the Roman Senate. Uh, though history is unsure one way or the other to what measure he succeeded in abolishing it, we know that he at least wrote the following in a letter to the senator Andromachus when the latter claimed that keeping the ceremony was essential to Rome's stability. The Pope said, quote, If you assert that this rite has salutary force, celebrate it yourselves in the ancestral fashion. Run nude yourselves that you may properly carry out the mockery, end quote. History is uh, silent on whether or not Andromachus took the Pope's advice. Well, above all else, Delazius always matched his blunt speech with a virtuous spirit and keen service of the poor. The truth spoken in charity is not the fullness of the truth. So, I mean, in fact, as I mentioned at the beginning, Delazius intentionally died penniless, having given away all of his possessions by the time of his death on November 19th, 496. Delazius' feast day is November 21st barely three weeks from when this episode will be published. Before we close out this week with one last great quote from St. Gelasius I, we want to be sure to thank Tanino, our newest patron over on Patreon. I hope I'm pronouncing that, Tanino. Uh, if you've been listening for a while personally have been, and uh, want to join the party to make sure we can cover our costs and continue producing these papal bios, bonus content like the Rosary Encyclical from Leo the Thirteenth that we just published from pa uh, four patrons exclusively last week, uh, and then as well as interviews with other prominent papists, head to thepopecast.fm and click the Become a Patron link to join for two or three bucks an episode. Uh, we're getting closer to that live Patreon Q&A, so we'd love for you to join the growing community there and make that a reality. Okay, so to close out this episode, as we always try to do with popes who have left us existing documents by their own hand, here's another snippet of Gelasius' powerful letter to Anastasius, the Byzantine emperor. Gelasius writes, what scripture says figuratively through the prophet is true. There is one alone, my dove, my perfect one. 
There is only one faith, and that is the universal faith. The Catholic faith is that which is sincere, pure, and spotless, set off from communion with all evildoers and their successors. Were this not the case, wretched confusion would take the place of divinely mandated discretion. Nor would it stay that way if we opened it up to any sort of contagion, or if we were to clear path or doorway for all sorts of heresies. For he who offends in one aspect of it does so for all of it, and he who scorns the little things will himself fall little by little. This is because the apostolic see takes special care that since its pristine foundation is the apostle's glorious confession, it should in no way be tainted by contagion or cracks of depravity. End quote. What a pope. Little known to virtually all Catholics today, myself included, until not very long ago, but Gelasius is definitely one of those giants on whose shoulders we all stand today, right? Thanks to his contributions to the church over 1,500 years ago. Well, thank you, as always, for listening. Once more, if you feel called to join us on Patreon, just go to thepopecast.fm and click the Become a Patron link. Otherwise, if you've been listening for a while and like what you're hearing and maybe aren't ready to be a patron yet, that's okay. Please just take a minute, if you can, to leave us a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. It really helps others listening to similar podcasts find the Popecast more easily. And we, of course, greatly appreciate all of your listener feedback to boot. And lastly, before we leave, uh, for inspiring Pope quotes and lesser-known papal photos and other great stuff in between new episodes, be sure to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at The PopeCast. So as we close this episode, let us ask for the prayers of Pope St. Gelasius I that we might be as bold in our convictions, as bold in speaking the truth in charity and in leading a life of virtue. Pope St. Gelasius I, pray for us. Until next time. Mm